You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. What an awesome time of worship we've already had together. So before I jump into the message, I just wanted to uh, just kind of do one more announcement to make you aware. So this week... Um, we actually have a couple of special services on Friday and Saturday night. Um, I have some friends coming from Spokane, Washington, Danny and Jamie Schultz. Uh, they're going to be speaking on Sunday as well. But Friday, Saturday night, we are taking an opportunity. So if you don't know, we have a program here, a leadership school called Momentum. Momentum Leadership School. It's a one to two year. We're actually adding a second year this year, and it's really exciting. But the first year is really a, a year to give to God, to ask these big questions. God, who have you made me to be? What are you asking of me? What do you want me to do with my life? And we, we go through the whole Bible in nine months. We do a lot of classes, a lot of practical things, a few different trips. They went to Columbia, as many of you know. And uh, so they're going to be graduating in just a few weeks. On uh, I think it's May 12th, maybe. And uh, before that, we love to just pray and minister over them. And so I like to have people come in and pray over them. We're going to have prophetic ministry nights where these people are going to pray over all of our students and maybe a few extra people. So this is the thing. I would love for you to come and just support our students, to come be a part. There's going to be a little worship, a little bit of a, just an exhortation message. And then we're just going to pray over the students and uh, just take a time of really believing that God speaks to us today, right? That he's still speaking, he's still telling us things, he's still directing us, and that's what we want to believe for. So 6.30, Friday and Saturday night, right here in the sanctuary, I'd love for people to come out and just be a part of supporting what we are seeing in our students. If you've been around them at all, you, you know that they are just on fire right now. Jesus is just doing something incredible in our young people. So... That's this Friday and Saturday. Also, um, I would just encourage you, don't miss next Sunday. Uh, Danny, my friend Danny Schultz and I have been talking quite a bit, and I'm excited. Next week, we're going to kick off, and he's going to do it for me, a series on worship. And uh, just talking about what does this mean for us? Why do we sing songs at the beginning of every service that we call worship? Why do we spend this time? And I've done messages here and there throughout the years, but I really feel like we're supposed to land a period of time on really just talking about what are we doing when we say the word worship? Um, what does it mean for us? What does it do in us? What is it doing through us? And so that's going to start next week. I'm really excited to have Danny preach that to us. All right, so um, yeah, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, exciting stuff. Friends are coming. I love when I have my friends come to speak to you guys. It just gives you a little bigger picture of the, the whole thing that we're involved in. You know, our church is not just by itself. We're in a, we're in a family of churches and a greater movement that are just really doing incredible things around the globe. I spent this week uh, with that family over in Portland, Oregon. Uh, just an incredible time. We had an intensives course, then we had a family day celebrating some things, um, and it was really an awesome time. Bruce Beckstead traveled with me. Peter and Gloria Vardner came up from Cali. We celebrated what's going on there. So really exciting. Um, would love for you to be here this week. All right. You still here? Okay. So I had a message planned, written out, all done, before I even left uh, to go on my trip this week for this Sunday. And wouldn't you know it, 
Jesus changed his mind. <laughs> you know, I, I honestly, whenever I prepare a message too far ahead, it never seems to stick. I pretty much gave it up. Uh, I only do like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's like people ask me on Tuesday, oh, you know what you're speaking on next week? I'm like, not yet, no. Because Jesus is always kind of stirring something, and it takes time to formulate. And, and I know people operate differently, and we have series, and so those kinds of things are more set. But, but this week I had something, and then I really just felt God put this word on my heart. It was actually from some scriptures I'm going to read, and they're really a little bit of vague scriptures. This story that only occurs once in all the Gospels that Jesus kind of shares some things in this, these few scriptures in Matthew. It only occurs once. Nobody else records it. It's honestly a little bit odd. And for some reason, it hit me really differently in the last, I think I read it probably two weeks ago. And then for some reason, it just kept coming back to me like, man, that is an odd story. And then I just felt Jesus really download some thoughts to me that I really felt to share. And I really think it's kind of a timely moment for us. And so the title of the message is called Sons and Daughters, but I want to read the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, you can open it with me. Matthew 17 is where we're going to read. But we're going to pick up near the end of Matthew 17, verses 24 through 25, or uh, 24 through 27. So I usually read uh, on Sunday mornings out of the New Living Translation. Um, but today I want to read this scripture out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, because I feel like it says some things that are important that the New Living kind of translates a little differently. Um, I don't want to get into a whole Bible teaching of translations right this second, but, you know, uh, the Bible is actually really technically a transliteration. It means that there's no word-for-word translations of the Hebrew and Greek very well, and so they transliterate means they have to take ideas and thoughts and put it into English language. Um, really exploring the whole Hebrew language. And so that's why you have different versions of the Bible. It's not that they really change the content drastically, but sometimes they illuminate things a little differently. And the ESV is probably in the lines of, of a more direct word-for-word -word translation rather than the New Living Translation being a thought-for-thought -thought translation. That's the idea, if you've ever heard any of those terms. So not to get into a big teaching on that, but today the ESV is where I want to land. So I believe that's the scriptures we're going to put on the screen. So let's start in verse 24. I'll we'll read right through 27, then we're going to go back. So this is Jesus. He's with his disciples. They're coming to Capernaum, and this is where it picks up. It says in verse 24, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. And take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. What an odd little story. It really is. Like Jesus is, they're talking about taxes, right? Like here we go, real life. <laughs> and then this kind of ends with this bizarre 
thing that Jesus tells them to do. Go cast a hook. There's going to be one fish, and there's going to be one shekel in its mouth, and that's how you can pay this tax. And this thing just hit me differently. I've probably read past this story kind of in a like, oh, that was weird type mindset a thousand times. And I, I was just more interested in science. So I ended up studying quite a bit on this in the last week and a half. And I want to go through some of what's taking place here first. So I want to give you some background. So uh, when it says this, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter. So this tax that, that they're talking about, when it says two drachma, uh, what it meant was that it would take two full days' labor to pay it. Okay? So two full days' labor. It was this understood idea of a certain amount, and it was you know, believed to be this temple tax that you see kind of labeled in Exodus 30. We don't have to go there. But this tax that was kind of given in the law way back in Exodus was for every Jewish male over the age of 20, and basically when they were at this working age, that two days of their labor would be given to the temple, and it was for a very specific purpose, to help cover the sacrifices of atonement. So we're going to talk about atonement here. It says, atonement is this, reparations or payment for a wrong or, in, or injury. So listen, atonement, if you've been in Christianity at all, there's a lot of talk around this this doctrine of atonement. What does it look like when we talk about Jesus on the cross and what he did, and we say these things? We say he paid for our sins. That's the word atonement coming into effect. It means that God took this bill and paid it for us rather than us paying it. So there was, you know, this injury or this issue that took place and now there's reparations due for that injury or hurt that's caused. And what we say when Jesus paid it on the cross, it means he took the payment that we were supposed to pay and paid it for us. It's called atonement. And it's interesting, if you go all the way back in Exodus, if you go through the Old Testament, we understand atonement in a very different context in the Jewish world. The Jewish world's way of atonement was sacrifice of animals. Are you glad we don't do that anymore? That's weird. But there was this whole idea where they would take their, their first or best lambs or different animals and they would present them as an offering to the temple, to the priests. And the priest's job was to actually kill the animal. And specifically when the blood would run out, because blood always, from the beginning of humanity, and we still understand today, it represents life, right? We know that without the blood in our veins, we're dead. So blood has always represented life. So when we talk about the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, we understood it was this life poured out from Jesus that now gives us new life. And there was the same symbolism happening, but it was through these animals, these animals, this kind of innocent animal that hasn't sinned in any way would now pay the cost and it was really now Jesus doesn't just like dead animals or God doesn't like dead animals don't get weird with it it was symbolism actually for the person presenting the offering offering more than it was for God it was the idea that this now cost me something it cost me an animal it cost me this this belonging that I have that's important to my family, I present it to God, and I see that it dies for the very sin and hurt that I've caused, and its blood covers me. 
It was called atonement. I'm very glad Jesus comes and does that so we don't have to do it anymore. But there was this idea that took place that to help cover the costs of those atonements that the Jewish males would have to pay for it. And now this drachma tax, this, this temple tax, was actually a really argued about um, thing going on even in the day of Jesus. There wasn't a lot of description in Exodus about it. It would just say that these Jewish males were, were required to pay this tax. So by the time we get to Jesus' day, and you've got, you know, the priests, you've got the religious leaders, you've got differing factions within the whole religious leader set up. You've got ones called Pharisees, you've got ones called Sadducees, and there's even a few others. And they would constantly argue amongst themselves about this tax, especially the common people. They hated this. You want to know why? Because who likes paying taxes? And so they were constantly arguing, do we have to pay this tax? Is it a requirement? Or is it something volitional? Do we ever hear that argument? It's the same thing I hear about tithing all the time. It's like, oh, are we required to give tithe? I'm like, no, Jesus just wants everything from you. That's the reality. Tithing isn't some requirement that we give in a bucket so that we can get the atonement that we have on the cross. It's a symbolism of our life saying, God, I trust you more than if I had 100% of my money. It's a constant practice to say, God, I'm putting my trust back in your life. And so I'm giving something that actually hurts. And so we look at this thing and this tax, and it was constantly argued about because they didn't know, is this required all the time? Then they would say, well, is it a one-time thing? Like, hey, once in their life the Jewish males have to give it? Or they were arguing maybe it's just a yearly thing. Some were even saying, no, it's every time you come to temple you're supposed to give it. So that would be that would be terrible for two days a week. You would lose, I mean, you'd only ever be making three days of your money a week. And so there was this struggle going on, and so it was an argument. So for this story to take place isn't really out of the norm for the day. For these tax collectors to come up, but even you can see the way they ask the question. They already have a perceived notion that Jesus is against the tax, right? And so they say, does your, uh, how does he say it? He says, does your teacher not pay the tax? They're kind of half answering it, right? Now, what's funny is we have no understanding before this story and no understanding after of whether they, Jesus and Peter had ever really talked about this. But Peter answers very affirmatively, oh, yeah, we pay it. Now, it's easy because I think sometimes in the moment, you know, he's probably just saying what he thinks he needs to say. But then you get to the house and Jesus creates a conversation around this. And there's a couple of things I want to know. First, I want to I get to the part where it says this. So the beginning of the story, there's two things that happen here. Beginning of the story, says the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the taxes? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? Anybody notice something weird there? Anybody? Why do you call him Simon? This is an interesting notion. Jesus has already changed his name. Simon was his name before this. Jesus starts referring to Simon as Peter and has been calling him Peter. In fact, even the beginning of the recorded story calls him Peter. But then Jesus says Simon. And I, I thought to myself, why, 
did he revert back to his name Simon in this moment? And I think it's probably because he agreed to the tax. Because this is the thing. This tax represents payment for atonement. And Jesus, if he's against anything, he knows this. No one can pay for their atonement. Only I can. And we're seeing this kind of precursor moment. I actually think he's almost half correcting Peter by calling him Simon because he realizes he's kind of stepped out like, oh, you, you told them that we want to pay this tax. You told them that we agree with the idea that if you give a shekel, because that was the idea, the, the amount was a, sh uh, a half shekel per person. And so when Jesus even says there's going to be one shekel in the mouth of the fish, that was enough for two people. And so this half shekel amount is, is all you need to cover your sins. And I think Jesus is almost semi-offended by it. And he's trying to make him re, re, be reminded, Peter, I made you a new person. That money does not. I turned you from Simon into Peter. I gave you new life. I'm going to pay for your sins. I'm going to give you an eternity with God. Not this payment. And so there's this funny moment where he calls him Simon. And he goes on, he says, Simon, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? This is interesting. From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Okay, this is a good question. So when he says from their sons, who, what, what's the title given to a son of a king? A prince. Can you imagine if there's a king who levies taxes on his people, on his subjects, on, on others? Why would he say, and his son, you know, in those days, the prince would live in his house, in the king's house, in the castle, all the things. Why would he say, oh, you have to pay too? Does it make any sense? Probably not. In fact, it was... You know, it was actually true that no monarchs paid taxes up until 1993. I did some history on this. In, nine, in the early 90s, um, Queen Elizabeth was really, the monarchy in England was under a huge stress. People were kind of saying, why do we still have this? It's antiquated. It doesn't make sense. Look, they don't even pay taxes. And so they instituted in 93 that the monarch's children, not, not Queen Elizabeth, but the monarch's children, would have to pay taxes for the first time. But up until then, there, were no, there was no such thing. Monarch's children, princes and princesses, would not pay taxes. It was an absurd idea. And it says, so he's asking a question he knows Peter slash Simon knows the answer to. He says, from their sons, now sons, I, I want to just do a little precursor here. Everything in the Bible is labeled in patriarchal language, okay? Especially the ESV is always going to do that because it literally was translated, it was talking about sons. But I want to say this, God is not just talking about males, it's sons and daughters. Other translations, they will change it. The NLT says children. Because we understand God is speaking about his children, both male and female. We can see it in Genesis 1. It's not elevating sons over daughters at all. But he says, from their sons or from others. Now this word others literally means this. It's, I think it's in your notes. Yes, foreigners, strangers, 
or not belonging to. I like that, not belonging to. You see, when you're a son or a daughter of somebody, you belong to a family, don't you? You have the same last name as each other. You're belonging to it. Even if you don't want to, you are. And so there's this belonging to factor. And what we see here is Jesus is asking this question, would I require a tax from people that are already belonging to my family? And Peter answers it. He says, no, that doesn't make sense. And I think that we have to take note of this in our lives. Because I think that we fall into the same trap as the Jews did of that day. As even Peter did when he kind of flippantly answered yes to those tax collectors. That we often take even what we know Jesus has given us as a gift on the cross. And we just try to pay for it. We often try. I just had a conversation recently with a woman. And she's asking me, and, and this lady's been following Jesus for 25 plus years, she said. But she said, can I pray with you the salvation prayer again? I just want to make sure. And I, I spent probably 20 minutes trying to convince her she didn't need to. You see, we do this. We, it's like we get this gift from God, but then we're constantly trying to pay the tab as well. And what's funny is even this little amount, now it was a two days labor tax, which sure, that's a decent amount of money, but at the end of the day, to pay for new life, is that anything? No. This piddly amount that's like just kind of this idea of like, oh, it makes me feel better that I'm paying for it. And I think we do the same thing to Jesus. We come to Jesus. We have this experience with him. We know that he's given us this gift of grace and, and he has promises and good things for our life. But then we end up spending our Christian life trying to pay for those good things. And what's really funny is it just never works. In fact, what I would say is this. That when we try to pay for the tax, we revert back to the person we once were. Because without the grace of Jesus, we can't become the new creation he's created for us. We can't be what he asks us to be. We can't even walk into all the promises and things he has for our life because we're constantly trying to pay for something we just can't afford. We can't afford new life. Did you know that? Nothing you do, say, nothing, not, not all the lists of right things to do, going to church every Sunday, none of those are enough to pay for this cause. It's free. 100% free, volitional reception, but it's 100% free. It's why Jesus ends by saying, then the sons are free. He's saying the children receive no tax. And he's correcting Peter in the midst of the actual circumstance. He's saying, why would I be paying for something that I'm paying for already? Why would you pay for something that you actually can't afford? And this whole story takes place, this little kind of moment where Jesus is correcting his thinking. And I, I feel like Jesus wants to correct our thinking. No matter how long we've been following. Maybe you've been following Jesus for five minutes or for 50 years. As humans, we have this tendency to not want to owe anything to someone. I don't know about you, but I don't. It hangs over our head. Now, we've created a whole culture where debt is normal. 
and owing people is normal. But I'm telling you, has, that, has anything caused you more stress than debt? I don't know if I've, like, literally. An ongoing stressor because we're not supposed to live under this hanging debt to someone. Yet somehow, even though Jesus has given us this gift, we feel like we owe him for it and we try to pay for it. And I would say that when we try to pay for it, it's almost a little slap in the face. It's this idea of asking Jesus or telling Jesus, hey, you know, the temple's guys came and asked us for the money. We got to pay him because I said yes. Now, what I love is the next part of the story, too. So let's go on. Verse 26, and when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. And then Jesus, I love this. He says, however, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I love this. Jesus meets Peter right where he's at. He corrects his thinking. He says, listen, Peter, you've, you've missed it on this. You, you're thinking you can pay for something you can't pay for. But Jesus decides that in this moment, because it really was a hot topic issue for the religious leaders, he decides to say, listen, but we don't need to offend everybody over this. I, in some ways, I think he's saying, Peter, I, I don't need to make you look bad right now. So... Here's a miracle. Now, this, this miracle is bizarre. Now, here's, here's something funny. If you don't notice, in the New Testament, there is no other circumstance where anybody fishes with a hook. None. They fish with nets. They don't fish with hooks. Because fishing with hooks didn't overly make sense. Because if you were a fisherman, you were trying to catch a lot of fish, not like us. If we're fishermen, we're like, we want to waste as much time as possible. I want to sit here in the beautiful sunshine. I want to catch fish, but I don't really want to catch a lot of fish because I'm not actually eating them. Mostly I'm just pulling the hook out, taking a picture, and throwing them back. But in their day, that's not what the point of fishing was. They're trying to catch a lot of fish, first for food for themselves and to sell as a business. So when he says, go and cast a hook, this is like a... What? Now, this is the same person that Jesus, when, when he calls Peter, he's in his boat, and he says, take your net, cast it on the other side. And what happens? He says they pull in a, a load of fish so much that the boat began to sink. And now, at the other end of the spectrum, Jesus says, go out with one hook. You'll catch one fish, and you'll get all you need. Think about that. I love the contrast of Peter's life in this moment. You see, here's Peter out on, the, out on the Sea of Galilee fishing with his friends. It said he fished all night and they caught nothing. And it says as he was coming to shore, they heard this, this man, this preacher they had heard about. And this preacher tells him, oh, try one more time. Just cast it on the other side. Now, as a fisherman, Peter would be thinking, I'm the professional fisherman. You're the rabbi. Stick to your thing, and I'll do my thing. But it says, nonetheless, he did it. And in that moment, God, Jesus blows his mind, right? He's been fishing all night, and now he pulls in a load of fish. So grand, the boat begins to sink. And it changes Peter's life. Peter becomes his follower, his, one of his most trusted people, one of his most trusted disciples, we hear all about Peter's life in the future, and we see that he knows God can produce 
something grand. But what I love is now Jesus takes a very similar stance, but he does it with one. He says, listen, just take one hook. Go out, you'll find one fish. And in its mouth, now you'll find what you need. And, and I like this because I think Jesus is challenging Peter. Trust me for the grand things and trust me for the small things. That even in the midst of an entire sea of fish, you could throw out one hook and the very first one you catch is the one I'm asking you to catch. I almost think that's a greater miracle than the first one with the net. Because it doesn't make any logical sense to us, right? I mean, the net one, it almost, we could reason it away, right? I'm sure lots of by, you know, people watching on the sidelines reasoned it away. Like, well, good, that was a good catch. Oh, he caught that school fish right at the right moment. But this makes no sense to any human mind. First, why does a fish have a shekel? Why is this guy fishing with one hook, and why is he throwing into the sea, and in his first pull-in, it's the shekel he needs? Not just to pay for one person, but it pays for the two people being asked. Jesus and Peter. And I love this, because even in the smallest way of life, Jesus can provide you everything you need. I think this is this precursor moment where Jesus is, he's addressing this idea of atonement, but he's also addressing this place of trust. Where do you put your trust, Peter? Should I call you Simon or should I call you Peter? Which, which one are you on today? Don't we do that? Some days I'm saved, Greg. Other days I'm not. I don't have a different name. But I'll tell you what, some days I know all the things that God has done for me and the promises and the goodness that he's working on my Some days I'm walking in the faith and the belief and the understanding of Jesus and who he is. And other days I'm probably just like Simon, doing it all the old ways I used to know how. You know, Elaine mentioned my message from two weeks ago with the whole light and darkness, that we get used to walking in darkness. And I think sometimes if we're not vigilant to stay in the light, we just find ourselves back in the dark place. Even something as simple as this. Peter answers this question to the tax collector without even thinking. Sometimes we do things without thinking and find ourselves straying from the very thing God wants us to be in. And Jesus corrects him. But then even in Jesus' correction, he meets him right there and he says, oh, uh, I'll pay it for you. You just got to go catch a fish. I don't know. This story stood out to me in a unique way recently because I really think that there's some of us that even though we've come to Jesus, even though we've had an experience with him, there seems to still be this distance between us and him. And I think sometimes it's because we really have a hard time swallowing the idea that Jesus has done everything we need to receive the gifts that he has for us. Even sometimes it's as simple as saying, God, we know we've received your grace. We know we understand, you know, I've repented. I've done the, I've said the prayer. I'm following Jesus. I, I know what you did on the cross. But then it's like we stop at the starting line of Christianity when Jesus is saying, listen, I have an eternity of goodness for you. I have all of these promises and good plans. And it's like we're like, yeah, but, but you didn't pay for those. And there's this correction that needs to happen in our mindset that God has paid for everything we need. The grand things, the cross, 
and the small things, our daily lives. And he wants us to be reminded that he sees those needs. I feel like maybe there's some needs in our life where like, well, God's not concerned about that. I mean, he does, he's not in that kind of miracle-working business. His miracles are, are big and grand and, and important, not this small little one. But I think Jesus is challenging our thinking today. Romans 8, I want to read some of this to you. I love this. We're going to start in verse 1. We might jump ahead a little bit. Verse 1, it says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I love that word, belong, again. Who do we belong to? There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. If you jump down a number of scriptures, you get down to verse 9. It says, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Verse 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, verse 12, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Now listen to scripture. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Listen, Jesus is drawing us in. You see, you can look from the beginning of Exodus through the Old Testament. And what you see is this desire not just to have a God, but the people, they start to ask God for a king. And, and sometimes we can just look at God as our king. And there's a place where that's a real thing. But God is trying to move us from just being some sort of subjects in his land to being his children. Because the subjects, the foreigners, the strangers of God, yes, they're do this tax. But his children, they're not do anything. And Jesus doesn't want us to live just as subjects of a king, but actually children of a father. Listen to this next part. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. In the ESV, it actually says when he adopted you as his sons. It's that same language. But we know it means sons and daughters. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. That's a whole nother message. <laughs> But there's this place where God wants to make you an heir to his throne. It says that we become his children. And I think one of the greatest travesties we can do in Christianity is receive the gift of grace on the cross, but just choose to stay subjects of a king instead of moving in to be children of a father. God wants to draw us in today to be children of a father. He has no problem paying whatever cost it takes. We know this. He has no problem paying for anything that we've done wrong or the things that we could add up that we've missed in life. He has no issue making the payment. We see it in the big ways, 
In these stories, we see it in the smallest ways. But it's simply this. Do we want to be children of our Father in heaven? Or do we want to just stay subjects of a king? Maybe saved. Maybe knowing his salvation. Maybe having the experience of that grace. But I'm telling you, that's not all this thing is about. I would just literally say... That climactic moment on the cross is where it begins. If we stop there, it's, it's sad. Jesus wants to draw us in so much deeper, so much closer, for so many greater things. The cross is what makes it possible. But our choices of whether we remain a subject or a child of God is on us. Why don't we stand this morning? a couple questions at the bottom of your notes that I'd like for you to think of on this week, but I want to pray and have a moment. But it says this, how have we continued to try and pay for our own atonement? We've all done this. Are we acting like sons and daughters of our heavenly father or just strangers to a king? I think we want to ask ourselves these questions. What does it look like for us? Maybe you're in this room and you've known God a very long time, but you you realize you haven't let him draw you in. Let him draw you in deeper this morning. Maybe you're in this room or you're watching online and you don't even know this Jesus. You don't even know God in any way. Well, I'm telling you, it's not just about a salvation moment. It's about being drawn into a family. And that family invitation is for every human, no matter who they are, what they've done. It simply takes a realization of saying, Jesus, I need you. I don't want to go my own way. I've done it wrong that way, and I want to go in your direction. Jesus, I need that grace. You can say it in any amount of words. Jesus will hear them and understand. Sometimes we get stuck on prayers of salvation. I'm telling you, just confess with your mouth that you need Jesus. He understands the rest. This is what I want to do. I want to take a moment. The worship team is going to uh, play, and I'm going to pray right now for you. You know, recently we've been opening the, the front of the church, the altar we call it, and I want to constantly encourage you. If God is stirring something in you, do something out of the normal. It's why we ask people to come front forward. Because sometimes it's like we hear God, we, we see him, doing something. We even feel him speaking to us, but it's like we're so stuck where we're at, it's hard to move. And one of the reasons we ask people to come forward is because it just makes you move physically. It's like, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to go forward. Yes, I know it's uncomfortable. That's the point. The point is to say, I, I'm so tired of being stuck where I am that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to go where Jesus needs me to. And so when we do these moments of saying, hey, come to the front, that's the challenge in our hearts. Will you let Jesus challenge you to draw you closer? Step out of the norm in some way this morning. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to worship. And I would just say, if that's you, come forward. Step out into the aisle. Maybe for you, you know, you're super scared of any of those things. Lift your hands for the first time in your life. Surrender to God and say, God, whatever you want. Jesus, I pray right now for every person in this room, every person online, God, that we wouldn't even cheapen what you paid for on the cross, that we wouldn't just receive even salvation, but then kind of 
sit down and, and maybe go through the motions of even trying to pay for what only you can pay for. God, I even want to repent of putting you in this place where I could imagine that you do the big things, but somehow absent for the small things in life. God, we know you're, you're there with us in every moment, in every situation. And so, God, I pray right now over every person in this place, would you stir our hearts today? Would you draw us closer to be sons and daughters of a heavenly father, not just subjects of a king? So, Jesus, draw us closer this morning. Let us come to know that love and grace and goodness you have. Let's worship together. Feel free to come down front if you'd like to. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.